his father's sister as wife. And she bore him Aaron and Moses, and the years of life of Amram were 137. So Moses' parents are named Amram and Jochebed, and we have the introduction of his brother, who is named Aaron. We learn a little more about Aaron in chapter 7, verse 7. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So we know from this account that Aaron is three years older than Moses. We find out about the sister when we go to the right in the Bible to Numbers chapter 26. Numbers chapter 26. <coughs> Numbers 26 and we'll be reading verse 59. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And to Amram she bore Aaron and Moses and their sister Miriam. So the family goes like this. Miriam is the oldest. Then you have Aaron. Then you have Moses. Mom and dad are Amram and Jochebed. Now go back to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2 verse 2. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. It begs the question, what if he was an ugly child? <laughs> well, what's interesting in the Hebrew is the expression for beautiful is not just talking about this external beauty, but something deeper than that. The New International Version translates it fine child. The Amplified Version translates it exceedingly beautiful. When, if you hold your hand here, go to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, we'll find that Stephen is on trial. Stephen will be the very first Christian martyr. And during his trial, he refers to the story of Moses. And in chapter 7, verse 20, this is what he says. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. This concept of beauty is not just a physical beauty, but it is talking about something character-wise. Even as a baby, there was something unique and wonderful about Moses that God identifies in his word. He was well-pleasing to the Lord. And that's associated with beauty. You can read about him also in Hebrews 11, verse 23, where again, he's called a beautiful child. So Moses is a unique child. There's something about him. There's a quality about him that distinguishes him from other babies. And also, it is his very beauty that is going to save his life. Because who knows how Pharaoh's daughter would have responded if this baby was not a beautiful baby. So let's go to, back to Exodus chapter 2 and verse 3. And when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. The word used here that is translated ark is from the Egyptian word tebet. 
It's only used one other place in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 6. And that's when Noah was instructed by God to make a tabit for he and his household. So Moses, who writes the book of Exodus and who writes the book of Genesis, who knows the Egyptian language, chose to use the Egyptian word tebet to describe the ark during the flood and the ark during his experience on the Nile. Now that is helpful for us to understand that indeed it was Moses who wrote Genesis and who wrote Exodus. The Hebrew word for ark is Aaron, and that's used in other places in the scriptures. Now, what is interesting is that scholars have looked at this word tebet, and they've looked at the translation of it into an ark, and when they associate the Hebrew concept of Aaron with it, Aaron could mean a box, it could mean a container, it also can mean a casket. So they've pondered, what is the symbolism here of placing the baby in a casket into the Nile River, and then it is dabbed with pitch and tar. Well, that pitch and tar that it is dabbed with is not a thick substance like you think of when you think of the tar that is on the roads. It's more of a liquid substance. It's more soluble, and uh, over time it hardens. And it was the actual fluid that was used for embalming in the Egyptian culture. So strange thing, the child is placed in a casket and the embalming fluid is on the outside of it and the child is placed in the Nile River. And so scholars have tried to make something of it. So have I, I can't come up with anything other than that's interesting. So I'm sharing it with you because I think you might think it's interesting too. So we come to verse three and it says, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes, those are the weeds that grow along the Nile, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Now, I studied everything that I knew how to study, or I had access to, cannot determine for you whether this thing is actually in the water or at the brink of the water. If it is in the water, it's a very shallow part of the water where it's caught in the reeds so it doesn't float out into the main channel of the Nile. And those are generally the pictures you get from the artist's rendition, but really when you look at it carefully and read it in a multiple um, translations, you, you can't, can't really tell. By the brink of the Nile is the closest that we can come. So don't know exactly if this is floating in the water or if it's just near the water's edge. Verse four, and his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. This sister is Miriam, we identified her. She's probably 10 or 12 years old. And what is happening here is not happenstance, it's a plan. She's been instructed by her parents what to do and what to say, what not to do and what not to say. They have brought this little basket or ark and strategically placed it where Pharaoh's 
daughter comes to bathe. Now her coming to bathe would be a regular thing. It's not just a matter of hygiene, though it was, it was a matter of worship because the Egyptians worshiped the Nile River. And as the Nile would snake its way through Egypt, it's from that form that you have the cobra that is associated with Egypt because it looks like, the Nile River looks like a snake. And they believed that from the Nile, they got their fertility. From the Nile, they got the ability to grow things. And from the Nile, they actually had life. So this woman who was part of the priestly family or instructed by priests would regularly go to worship the God that is represented by the Nile River. So this baby is placed there where that happens. And Miriam is to stand watch. Verse five, then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river and her maidens walked along the river side. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby wept. And she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Something happened inside of her. Her humanity responded to another human being. God is working on her heart to give her compassion. And she has compassion for this baby and explains, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Now, though this is straightforward and fairly easy to understand, as I studied it this week, I discovered there's more to what we see on the surface. When Miriam approaches Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter with the idea of finding a Hebrew to nurse the baby, she is working on a cultural norm. And the cultural norm is this. It was wrong for an Egyptian woman to nurse a Hebrew baby. They were distinct races in their mind and they were not to, to intermingle like that. And so Miriam is coming up to Pharaoh's daughter and basically saying, you know, according to the customs of the land, it would be wrong for this beautiful baby to be nursed by an Egyptian maid. How about if I find a Hebrew woman for you so that the Hebrew woman can nurse the Hebrew baby? And Pharaoh's daughter responds, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Now this becomes a beautiful story for us to see how God has worked through a difficult situation for Amram and Jochebed. But the story is not over. The difficulties are not over. Watch what happens. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now again, at this point, we're riding high with excitement. She gets the baby back and she gets money to boot. She gets money to raise her child. And uh, there's more to that than just the idea of getting money. This is now a contract and it is sealed by this arrangement of wages. 
And that is Pharaoh's daughter's way of protecting this baby. There is not a soldier in Egypt that will touch this baby now because Pharaoh's daughter has her signature of approval on the baby. And she is in a contractual agreement with the baby's mother that she basically is purchasing the baby. That baby has been adopted now by Pharaoh's daughter. So the child grew and she, that's Jochebed, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now Moses was named by Pharaoh's daughter. We don't know what Amram and Jochebed called him. We're not told that. Moses is an Egyptian name. It means drawn out. So Moses is now taken to Pharaoh's daughter. So here's, that's the good, the good news is he's alive. They saved him alive. The difficulty is how would you mothers like to be raising a child knowing you have limited time with that child and that child is going to be placed in an environment that is ungodly. That child will be placed in an environment that is humanistic. That child will be placed in an environment that is immoral. That child will be placed in an environment where it will be taught and instructed in the ways of the gods of Egypt. How would you feel as a parent to that child? What would you do for that child? Well, I believe you would take every opportunity you had to teach that child about the true God, about the promises that he has made of redemption, about Abraham, Jacob, about Isaac and, and all of that. You would, you would do everything you could to make sure when that child left you, that child had something inside of it to protect it from the influences that would be coming. Well, you know, I've just described parenting, haven't I? I mean, that's what it is. At some point, our children are raised. At some point, they are out there in an ungodly world. At some point, they are making decisions for themselves. And you know, I really believe one of the most important things we can do for one another as a church family is pray for each other's children. Because it is a real battle that takes place when they leave home. They are faced with all kinds of stuff. And uh, so, that's the story. And we can look at it from many levels. We can talk about the emotional ups and downs that take place. Imagine the horrors of birthing a child into an environment where you know that child has to be killed or you'll be killed. Imagine putting the child in a basket and putting it by the reeds there and posting a 10 or 12 year old daughter to stand guard. Imagine all those emotions. And we, we want to feel those emotions, but we don't want to ruin the story by that. And nor do we want to just have the story and not the emotions. They go together. These are real people in a real experience. And they were going through it. The question is, why was Pharaoh so interested in destroying the Hebrews? Why was he trying so hard to destroy the Hebrews? Let me share with you a principle that is found in God's word. 
And then I'm going to show you why Pharaoh wanted to destroy the Hebrews. Here's the principle. The wicked plot against the just. Another way to say it, the wicked plot against the righteous. The ungodly seek to destroy the godly. That happens in the world. It happened back in Moses' day. It happens in our day. There is something going on where the wicked plot against those that are seeking to serve God. It happens. It happens in the workplace. It happens sometime in homes. It happens in churches. It happens in the neighborhoods and in extended families. The wicked plot against the just. So that's an undergirding to everything we're going to learn regarding why was Pharaoh so interested in destroying the Hebrews. Go back to chapter 1, verse 9. And he said, this is Pharaoh, look at the people of the children of Israel. They're more and mightier than we are. That is a bold-faced lie. They are not mightier than the Egyptians. The Egyptian culture has stood for hundreds of years prior to this. There are millions and millions of Egyptians. The Israelites have only been there 150 years and they started out with 70. So we discover that this can't be the reason. And he goes on to say, come let us deal wisely with them lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. That sounds good, it sounds plausible, but it is not logical. There's not enough of them to make a difference. So what's going on here? Then he says in verse 11, therefore set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens and they built for Pharaoh's supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. These people are slaves. They cost Egypt nothing and they've built two great cities. What's this guy doing? He's willing to destroy something that is good for his country just because he's got an attitude. Well, what is that attitude? The wicked plot against the just. It is always going to happen. It has happened in the past, it happens now, and it will happen in the future. And if a person is not serving God, who will they be serving? There's no neutrality. If a person is not serving God, who are they serving? They're going to be serving themselves and tantamount to serving Satan. So note this, that in this process, there is exaggeration. There is a seeking to justify an unreasonable course of action. We see that in Pharaoh's life. We've seen it in our own lives. When we are wanting to do something and we know it's not right, we exaggerate the benefits of it. We justify it in some, on some level, even though it might hurt us, we still want to be satisfied in the moment. This guy is not thinking long, long haul. He's got these slaves and they're building cities for him. What else could they build? But the wicked plot against the just, and here's why. Because behind the scenes, there's a greater story taking place. And the story is this, 
God has promised the human race a savior. That savior would come and give humanity a chance to be forgiven for their sins and to go to heaven. That savior was promised through Abraham and his seed. All of Abraham's seed associated with that promise are in Egypt. They are the Hebrews. And so the devil is trying to stop the plan of redemption. That's what's going on behind the scenes. And because Pharaoh is ungodly and not serving God, all he has to do is stir him up a little bit, get him wound up, exaggerate things in his mind, and he has a maniacal attitude towards these people. He's trying to crush them and hurt them in some way. The wicked plot against the just. But do you know what happens? Do you know what happens when the wicked plot against the just? The Bible says God laughs. Now, what's he laughing about? How many of you have ever experienced the wicked plotting against you? Have you been lied about? Have you been, you know, your character assassinated? Those types of things. I, you know, laugh? God's laughing. What's he laughing at? Well, the, I'm going to show you the text. He's laughing at the wicked and their arrogance who think they can do it and get away with it. God is going to step in and he is going to deliver all his people. And even though the wicked plot against the just, the Lord laughs at the wicked because he's going to deliver the just. In fact, one of the profound lessons of this story is that the very thing that Pharaoh thought would destroy the Hebrew race, God used to deliver them. Watch. When Moses is placed in that basket and found by Pharaoh's daughter, what does the Bible say happened in her heart? She had compassion. Do you know that that baby was already beginning to be the deliverer for the nation of Israel. Because when Pharaoh's daughter went back home to her dad, she was able to convince him this law is not right and the law is withdrawn. There's no record of any Hebrews ever drowning in the Nile River. There's no record of it and there's no more mention of it in scripture. God has already used this baby in a great deliverance. And here is a principle in life. The very things that people set up for our destruction, God will use for our deliverance. It's like Joseph with his brothers when he says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God is that powerful and God is that interested in our lives. Let me give you a couple examples scripturally of where the weapon that was fashioned to destroy the righteous became the very weapon to deliver them. You have the story of David and Goliath. David represents Jesus, Goliath represents the devil. David throws a stone with a sling, hits Goliath in the head, Goliath stumbles and falls down, but he is not dead yet. How does Goliath die? The sword, whose sword? His own. David grabs that sword and whacks the head off. 
Do you want to know how many times it took to hit it before he broke through the giant's vertebrae? Do you want me to imitate it? I'm just trying to wake up a few people here. He cut the head off, which killed the giant. The giant was slain by his own weapon. God delivered his people using the weapon that was fashioned against them. We move on down in history to Calvary. The devil's greatest weapon has always been death. What did Jesus do on the cross? He died. He used the devil's own weapon against him. Jesus died, but he conquered death and delivered us in the process. And so we see that God can laugh at the plots of the wicked because he will turn what they have sought to be destruction, God will bring deliverance. But how are we supposed to go through it? Would you like a passage of scripture that is there for you whenever the wicked are plotting against you? Would you like a nice how-to expression of what to do, what to think, what not to think, and what not to do? I would, and I'm praising God this morning. He has given us one. Please turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. What to do when the wicked are plotting against you? What to do when the wicked are prospering? What to do when somebody stabs you in the back and uses it as a stepping plate to rise above you and then to make your life miserable? What to do when injustices come? What to do when weapons have been fashioned against you? Psalm 37, verse 1. First of all, do not fret because of evildoers. <clears throat> nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. We're not to fret because of evildoers, and we're not to be envious because people use ungodly methods to move ahead in life and to prosper. Don't be envious of them. For they shall be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Listen, folks, we're in this journey for the long haul, and the long haul is eternity with God. That's the long haul. And this life may be rocky sometimes. And Jesus himself said, look, folks, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? This is temporary, what we're involved in. So don't fret. Don't be envious. They're going to be cut down. Trust in the Lord. I would like you to repeat that with me. Trust in the Lord and do good, all right? So we trust in God, we do good, dwell in the land. That means don't run, you're here, this is it. Feed on his faithfulness. God is faithful. He has never been unfaithful. His promises he always keeps. He is faithful, he is true, and we are to feed on that. Feed on it, dine on it, remind yourselves of it, look for it, watch for it, it's happening, and delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, 
Trust also in him. So what do you do? Whatever you do, commit it to the Lord and walk with God through the process. He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. God is not silent. God is here. And God will bless and protect. Rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Man, when they're really grinding against us and injustice is heaped upon us, it is so hard to rest because we're fretting and we're struggling. Folks, this is telling us, let God be God. Rest in him. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Now watch this one. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. So when the wicked are plotting against us, our natural reaction is going to be anger. Our natural response will be wrath. God is telling us, stop it, cease it, forsake it, do not fret, it only causes harm. Harm to whom? To us. It's not gonna help anything. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look diligently for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Here we go. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming. I wonder if it wouldn't be an expression of faith when the wicked are plotting against us, if we would just laugh. What are you gonna do to me? Go ahead, take my job. I'll get another one. Had a friend who lost a job. He said, it's okay, I was looking for a job when I got this one. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to lie my, myself, uh, malign my character? You know, I, you know what it's like. You know what I'm talking about. You, we can't worry about those things. And I wonder if it wouldn't be an expression of faith when someone wicked is plotting against us if we would just laugh about it. This life is short. Eternity is coming. There will be pharaohs in our future. There's going to be a time when government will be oppressive, overbearing, and they will be unjust. 
and just about the time when it looks like all is lost, God will deliver us for eternity. He will do that then, but all along life's way, he will do it for us in the skirmishes that we have. So please, remember Psalm 37 when life presses against you, when the wicked are plotting against you. In fact, what I'd like you to do right now Look to the person next to you and say, remember Psalm 37. Is there anyone today that would like to say to the Lord, Lord, I do want to trust in you and feed on your faithfulness. I want to delight myself in you. I want to commit my ways to you. I want to rest in you. I want to wait patiently on you. I want to cease from anger and forsake wrath. I want to stop fretting. I want to believe in you, trust in you, and be delivered by you. If you would like to say that, I invite you to stand. Father in heaven, help us, Lord. We are human and, and we live here in the realm of humanity. Help us to see the greater picture of you and your power and your love. And may we laugh with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I invite everybody to stand as we have our closing song.